Good evening. When it comes to Megillus Esther, so most of us heard the story when we were very young, and it's pretty it's a pretty good story. And the way we think about the story is always framed in those um, very with those very first impressions that we had of it. And um, it's important as time goes on to constantly try to relook at it and perhaps gain a more sophisticated understanding of what's really going on. Now, if you would ask a person to be a Megillah critic and um, you know point out you know what what could what could we do to make Megillah a little better, so people would say that there are two problems. It's usually after Tanisester, so you're hungry. And it starts too early because the whole first part of the story doesn't really matter. And it just stretches on at the end way too long. Haman dies. I mean, the basic story is, okay, Esther becomes the queen. The Jews are in big trouble. Esther goes, intervenes. Haman gets killed. Jews are, you know, and then everybody lives happily ever after. And we have Purim. If you look at a Megillah, Haman gets killed at the end of the seventh paragraph. In the art scroll, I think that there are three pages in the art scroll in the Stone of Chumash, there are three pages after Haman gets killed before it's over. So there's no more banging for Haman because he's dead, so he's not around anymore. And it just kind of drags on. There are letters sent here and letters sent there, and then you know you have to list the, all the names of Haman's sons, etc. What is all of the beginning and what's all of the end of the Megillah about? So in order to really understand like, the, the, the full framework of what's going on in the Megillah, I'd like to pick one part in the story that um, is really the focal point of where people think about, you know, this was the moment in which, you know, the table started to turn and everything started to get better. And it's really one of the weirdest things in the world if you, if you give it a little thought. We know that, so Esther is in the, you know, he's, she's Achashverosh's wife. She's not very happy about it. And there's this terrible decree against the Jews. Esther finds out about it. Mordechai and Esther are in contact with each other. And Mordechai says, Esther, it's now or never. You've got to step in. You've got to go before the king. And you have to get the Jewish people to, you know, have this evil decree rescinded. And so, Esther tells Mordechai, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to fast for three days. You have to get all of the Jewish people to fast and daven for three days. And they do. And the, the fast takes place on Pesach. They don't even have the Seder. They don't eat matzah. They don't do anything on Pesach because of this very, very important fast. And she finally goes, and Midrashim tell us how she had the Shechina with her, and she walks to what may very well be her death. She hasn't been called before the king in 30 days. And miraculously, as she appears in front of the king, the king who at first appears to be totally not interested in her, looks at her, she's matzachin, she finds favor in his eyes, he picks up the scepter, the drushin, the scepter grows, his arm grows, and she's able to touch the scepter, not get killed, and she comes in front of the king, and the king says, Esther, what do you want? Half the kingdom, 
and it's done. And at that moment, in which she had been building up, all the Jews had been davening, to this moment, what does she say? You want to come to a party? What is she doing? That is the, that is the weirdest thing that she could possibly do. Why is she asking him to come, him and Haman, to a party? I mean, eventually she's just going to pull the trigger and say, can you save me and my nation? What is the point of the delay? All of the buildup had been to that moment. And then it just drags it on. Stretching it out. But it's after a fast, you know? You don't want to do that. Maybe it's odd for so, let's start from the beginning of the story, because there are really a number of things that we can just start to explore throughout the story that can give us an idea of what was really going on at that moment. Now, the, the story starts with Vahibi Me'achashverosh. That's how the Megillah begins. So, we have Achashverosh, and we're given a lot of detail about a party that he throws. Now, we know we're told that the Jewish people attended this party when Mordechai told them not to. That is not in the Megillah. That is in the Gemara. That's in the Medrash. That's in the oral part of Megillah Sester. And Megillah Sester all tells us is about this, this amazing party that he threw 180 days, wines and dines all of the ministers of all the 127 lands that he is the king of. Why is the Megillah telling us this? And... Why, really, why is he doing it? Why is Achashverosh doing this? Again, this is like we're all kind of programmed to think Achashverosh was a complete fool. And, but, you know, you and I, we're not kings of 127 nations. So he's got to have something going for him that he was able to get that without having any yichus. He didn't have any lineage to get there. He really, you know, killed his way to the top, like in the good old days. And... How is it that, so as, as much as he is perceived in some ways as a fool, but he's obviously a shrewd guy. So what's he doing this for? If you were a king, how would you try to keep 127 nations spread out across half the world together if you didn't have a phone, you didn't have the internet, you had no way of real communication. For all you know, there's something going on in one of your provinces, a rebellion. You probably won't hear about it for a year. How do you keep it all together? How do you make sure that your empire doesn't fall apart and doesn't crumble? The way to do it is to make everyone feel like they belong to something chashev. They belong to something important. What, what Achashverosh is doing over here and what the, what the Megillah is opening up with, and this is going to be a very vital thing, Achashverosh wants to keep his kingdom together. And in the way he feels that he's going to accomplish this is by having all of the ministers from all of the different lands that he is officially the king of come to Shushan and get wined and dined and get completely blown away by what it means to be a member of this empire. This is good. This is something that, that I want to have. And that's why, so the Megillah starts and tells us all of the different ostentatious things that were going on and all of the wonderful things that were the wealth of Persia. Then he asks Vashti to come to the party. Now again, 
If the Megillah really could have started by telling us Vashti's dead, he's looking for a new queen, and he finds Esther. There's a reason that we're being told that there's this party, he asks Vashti to come, and Vashti refuses to show up. Why does he want Vashti to show up at the end of this party for? What's the point of that? A king is a person who is really not just a person. The way things used to be is that a king was a symbol of a nation. He was the figurehead of a nation. People who had been oppressed by the king and taxed by the king and enslaved by the king would go and die for the king. Not because they thought he was a wonderful guy. He was not wonderful to them. But since he was the embodiment, the leader, the person who represented them and their country, therefore there was this very strong sense of loyalty, not to the human being, the king, but to the king, to the Caesar, to the pharaoh, to whoever it was. And the fact that he was a human being was kind of like a side point. A queen is a female representation of what the kingdom is all about. There can be a, a, a person who, again, serves as that figurehead, as that statue-like being that represents what the country is all about. There are many in America who would say that the Statue of Liberty stands for what this country is all about. Asking immigrants to, to recount when they first saw the Statue of Liberty if when they talk about it, when they see it years later, it brings tears to their eyes to remember this is what America stands for, the woman standing there with the beacon of hope, bringing this retired, poor, huddled masses, right? That is, that's what America stood for. And it was all captured in that statue. A queen is the female king, and she is representing the beauty of what the kingdom is all about. So at the end of this party, in which he had wined and dined all of these officials, and he had gotten them to feel like, wow, we're part of something really awesome. He was going to bring in, this was going to be like the finishing touch. Bring in the queen. She's supposed to come in with her crown. And she is supposed to represent, this is what the, this kingdom is all about. She is Mother Persia. That's what she is, and she's going to be the representation, this beautiful woman is going to be the representation of what Persia is, of what my kingdom is, for you to take back to your province, to your whatever little uh, dinky country you live in, and tell everybody how amazing being part of this empire is. Now, unfortunately, it completely backfires on, on Ahasuerus, and instead of the queen coming and being this figurehead, she sends a message to him that about how her father was the real king, Belshazzar, and her father could drink Achashverosh under the table, and Achashverosh is just a stable hand and a, and a big nobody, and Vashti ends up getting herself killed. Now, why is this important? Because it answers a very, very fundamental question for us. Esther is now taken into the palace, and Esther has to, you know, go through the whole process of being chosen as the queen, and she's given an instruction. Don't say who you are, where you come from, what your parents, who your parents were, what nation you're from. Now, come on, how did you get away with that? How could you be, you know, these days, 
every if you become anything close to the President of the United States, everybody will know every little thing about you. If you have any tiny little skeletons in your closet, you better get them out before people find them because everything is going to be found out. How is it possible? Why does it make any sense that Achashverosh would completely not care who her parents were, what country she was from? Why didn't it matter? Answer. Because what he's really looking for is someone who doesn't have any loyalties to a specific province, someone who doesn't have any loyalties to a specific family. He's looking for a queen who is totally and completely generic, someone who is just going to represent the kingdom. And what perfect person to choose than a person, obviously everybody has a family and everybody has a country that they're from and a nation that they're from, but if there's some girl who is not even interested in telling me about her family, she doesn't think about her country, she doesn't care about her nation, that is the perfect mother Persia. This is the perfect queen that I want. This is the perfect replacement for Vashti. So the Megillah tells us all about what happened at the beginning. Where Achashverosh's mind is. He's trying to bring his empire together. Vashti is supposed to be the crowning figure of this place. And she botches it up because she's, she still remembers her past and her yichus. So now he gets a queen who's completely yichus free, who's country free, nation free, family free. This is the perfect queen for Achashverosh. Totally and completely generic. So now, then we know that the story rolls on. Haman becomes influential. He makes a gezerah, he makes a decree against the Jewish people. He's going to destroy them. Mordechai gets in touch with Esther, says, Esther, now we know why you're there. It's time to move. She has to go and tell the queen, please save my nation. How is she going to do that? She's got a big problem now. What, what should she say there? She should go to the king and say, listen, I mean, one argument that she uses is some sort of moral argument. You know that there's a people that are going to be oppressed and destroyed and wiped out, and shouldn't we have mercy on them? It's not so nice. So Achishverosh doesn't strike us as the type of person that's going to react well to that. He doesn't care, obviously. He sold them down the river for nothing. So his, what he thinks of the Jews, and certainly what he thinks of one nation being obliterated, is that's not going to win with him. If she can go and say, please, my family, my nation, my people. Well, if she says that, he's going to say, you liar. The whole time you told me you didn't have a nation, you didn't have a family, you didn't have a country, you didn't care about any of it. So Esther does pull off this amazing feat that through the truth of the Jewish people, she's able to get herself in front of the king. But now she's stuck. What does she say? As soon as she says that she's Jewish and that she cares about them, then, then Achashverosh finds out she's just as bad as Vashti. She's just a big pretender. She, wasn't, she didn't want to be Mother Persia. She was just, uh, you know, uh, she, she was a double agent for the Jewish people. So it's bad for, Esther's going to get knocked off, and Jewish people certainly aren't going to get any sympathy. So she's there, but you know something? She can't do anything at this point. She's still stuck. So what does she do? So in other words, what we think is like this moment and like where everything changes, it's kind of the most, well, it's one of the most dangerous moments in the Megillah for Esther, and she just made her life 
a lot more complicated and a lot more dangerous. Because now she's coming in front of the king. Now she's getting involved. But she has this terrible secret that she actually cares about something other than the king and, and this empire. But she can't reveal it. So how is she supposed to go to bat for the Jewish people and at the same time keep her head attached to her body? There's a problem. So Esther takes evasive maneuvers. And she invites the king and Haman to a party. Now, Rashi, quoting the, the Gemara and Bedrashim, say, what is she up to? What is, all of a sudden she has this idea, Haman, where's Haman come in? We don't see that she had any kind of relationship with Haman before this. Like, I mean, I guess Haman always hung around with the king. It doesn't seem that Esther hung around with the king very much. She hadn't been there in a while. So, what's going on? The Gemara says that Esther was trying to make Ahasuerus suspicious and jealous. That, hey, one second, what's, why is Esther, what does she have to do with Haman? What's she getting involved with him? And she's trying to generate a jealousy. Perhaps thinking that, you know something, maybe I'll go down, but let me take Haman with me. I'll take Haman with me at this time. She's just, she's really just like, you know, at this point, she's just trying to do whatever she can to stay alive in enough time that she can take out Hama. So she figures, okay, let me try to plant a little seed in Ahasuerus' mind. There's a very interesting diuk that when she tells Ahasuerus um, to come to a party, the way she says it is, she says, um, that that Yavo Amalaf Haman Elha Elha Mishta Asher Asisi Lo that I'm making for him. Who's him? Which him? I mean, there are two hymns. There are two men that are being invited to this party, and Lo is like in the third person. So already Achashverus is like, what's she talking about? Then, I mean, party number one happens, and again. Achashverosh is just like, Esther, whatever you want. But again, Esther is just kind of buying time. So she does the next best thing, which is she keeps the suspicion alive. She says, guess what? And I'm going to make for them. Now it's like really weird. Like Achashverosh is totally confused by what's going on to the point where now we get to the point where that on that night the king can't sleep. Why can't he sleep? Says Rashi. You know why he can't sleep? Because he's thinking, what is going on with Esther and Hama? What is there between them? Why do, they, why do they keep being at the parties together? Why am I not getting any alone time with Esther? That's why he can't sleep. So she has created a situation. There's nothing worse right, than having some sort of doubt in your mind that you can't figure out. And everything just becomes more confusing, right? Like, the, the waiting is like, you know, they, they just keep dragging on the, the uh, you know, the, the suspense more and more. So, Ahasuerus is in this tremendous situation of suspense to the point where he's obsessed. He's obsessing about what's going on over here and can't even sleep. What happens at that moment? Who shows up at the door? Hama. So he can't sleep. He asks to have his book read to him. He remembers that, yeah, one time Mordechai did him a favor. And all of a sudden, Haman's at the door. 
Haman. So he starts asking Haman, Haman, what should I do with the man who the king wishes to honor? And over here, the Megillah interestingly goes into like, you know, uh, you know I forgot what it's called, third person omniscient or something, and starts saying how, oh, and Haman's thinking to himself, well, who would the king want to honor more than myself? So he starts talking about, oh, the, the guy should wear the king's this and the king's that and the king's other thing and ride the king's horse. Now, there's a halacha that says that when a king, when a king dies, when King Shaul died, all of his possessions had to be burned. Because no one is allowed to use the king's things after, he's di- after he dies. And you, you know what? A queen is not allowed to remarry. Because no one's allowed to have the king's things after he dies. So, in Ahasuerus' mind, Haman did himself such a terrible disservice at this point. Because what's going on in Ahasuerus' mind is he's thinking, what does Haman want over here? What's he trying to do? Is he, is he up to something with Esther? Haman shows up and starts talking about how the king who the man, wish, the, the man who the king wishes to honor should have all the king's things. He's like, oh my gosh, Haman, he's really out to take my job over. He, he and Esther are probably planning to, to, to knock me off, kill me. So Haman has done himself a tremendous disservice, and this is where you see a tremendous amount of Yad Hashem that Haman happens to show up. He goes to the king to ask for permission. He's really going to ask for permission to kill Mordechai. His wife told him, go tomorrow morning. Haman jumps the gun and he goes at night. When does he show up? He shows up when Ahasuerus is thinking about what's going on with Haman and Esther. Haman then goes and confirms all of Ahasuerus' fears. So you see, like, there's a hand of Hashem making maneuvering events to happen so that things are not looking good for Haman. Then, party number two takes place. So, at this point, she's got no choice. I mean, she's already delayed a couple of times. And, once again, the king lays out, you know, Esther, what do you want already? Now, Esther has, as this is going on, she kind of has two strikes against her. Strike one is that Esther may be cheating on him. That's in planning to have a coup and kill him and, and have, to have Haman take his place instead. That's obviously not good. And also, she's about to reveal that she really does have a nation and she really does care about that. So Esther is literally about to throw herself right into the lines then. I mean, she is... This is a suicide. Whatever she's going to say right now, could very, very well be just total and complete suicide. But she does a very slick move. She doesn't talk about her people, primarily. She talks about herself. She says, please give me nafshi b'sheilasi, the ami b'vakashasi. She first asks for her life, and then she asks for her nation to be spared. Now, let's look at this from, again, let's try to think about this for a second. The fact that she feels like her life is threatened is perhaps the most absurd thing that she could possibly say. Nobody knew she was Jewish. She wasn't going to get killed. Number two, obviously Ahasuerus would have said, okay, so you won't get killed. I mean, it's just that simple. Oh, I didn't know you were Jewish. Okay, so yeah, you happen to fit in over here. Here's another edict that, except for Esther. Okay, now everything's happy. So... But what she does is, she takes this chance 
And it's a chance that, again, this is all you see the Yah Hashem at work over here. Because the chance of something like this succeeding, very slim. She makes a very, very smooth hishtadlus of trying to say that it's all about, please, Achashverosh, can you save me? While at the same time dropping the fact that she has a nation that she actually cares about. And by playing the victim, even though she has a highly dubious um, ex, you know, reason that she feels like a victim going on over here, she's trying to get Achashverosh enraged. And it works. Achashverosh gets worked up, and she has kind of cooled off this whole um, revelation. First of all, she also diffuses the fact that if she's saying that Haman's trying to kill her, well then obviously Haman, she's not with Haman, right? She's not trying to depose Achashverosh. I mean, she's, she's, she's taking Haman down. So in that way, she's kind of cooling Achashverosh off. She's distracting him by saying that my life is in danger and hoping that Achashverosh, being a little bit of a fool, is not going to think too much about this. Now, also another thing, yeah. it's like, it becomes a thing like, now it's like, it accidentally shifted from not being her and him against Ahasuerus, now she's also saying, because like, this, I know like, for, I also get a lot of historical fiction, yeah. <laughs> I know a lot of this stuff, but like, they're always having these court entries and all these things, but also now it makes it like, him and her against Right, um, that so he's like, the knight in shining armor, team, right. Teaming up, so it's like, oh, right. now it's us. She's, she's, she's the damsel in distress. Right, and also it's like, so it's not only like saying, ask about me, but it's like making it like, we have to fight him right. together. And now they're, right. it reverses, like, they're together, and it's their thing. Right. And it's almost like it's making it like, we, we have to take the kingdom back. Kind of but her, her big problem is that while normally the king does things without thinking, he actually goes outside for a little bit of air to clear his mind. Probably first time in you know, years that he's done that. And this is a moment of, think about it again, like let's play the story in slow motion. When Esther sees him, not just say, kill that guy. When she sees him go outside to try to take a couple of breaths outside, this is bad. Because Haman really could have just like said, Esther, I'm not trying to kill you, you know that. Like he could have smoothed everything over if the king would have calmed down. But two things happen. One is that somehow Haman ends up falling down onto her bed, onto her, the couch that she's on. Two is that there's this guy, Harvona, who shows up and points out that there's a tree that Haman had in order to hang Mordechai with. Now, those two events happening at that moment are what save Esther and what save the day. Haman, the, again, the visual of Haman being on the couch with Esther. And he says, Are you trying to, to write in front of me? This is ridiculous. Now, obviously not. Esther just wanted, uh, Esther just obviously pointed out that, Achashverosh, I'd like you to kill Haman. So, obviously, Haman's not trying to seduce her. That's not what's going on right now. I mean, there's, he fell or something. He ended up on that couch. But because he's so obsessed, because of all the events that happened before, he can't, he's not thinking clearly. As soon as he sees the visual of Haman on the couch with her, it's, it's the, 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 the words of the Megillah are that the, the, the words came out of his mouth, that the words just um, uh, fell out of his mouth when it comes to the king. So 
the, the king is talking from his deep subconscious that all of my fears are, I'm seeing a visual of them all coming true, of Esther and Haman together, and me over here. So that's enraging point number one. Point number two is that Charvona says, and Charvona just points out, and we have this Charvona guy who's Zohar Latov, right? So he's remembered for good. He says, he points out that, hey, you know, there's that tree that Mordechai, who spoke good about the king, remember, he was, he's your good friend? It's over there in the house of Haman. Achashverosh then thinks to himself, he didn't know if Esther was on his side. He didn't know if Haman was on his side. He didn't know, like, in the, in the, again, in the world of court intrigue, this, you know, these kingdoms were nuts. So he didn't even think his king and his, his queen and his right-hand man were with him. The only person who he knew was his ally was Mordechai. And Haman was about to kill him. That makes Haman public enemy number one. And before anything can happen, he says, take that guy, put him on that thing, and... That's the end of Haman. And it would seem that's the end of the story of the Megillah. But it's not. Because guess what? Things are great for Esther, but things are really lousy for the Jews. Because Haman being dead is really completely irrelevant. And this is what happens from the beginning of Parakhes. Right? The king, he's totally chilled at this point. Everything is from, from Achishverish's perspective, nothing's wrong anymore. Esther is back with him. Haman ended up being the real enemy. He's gone. So what's the problem? At this point we have, fascinating, we have that, so then the Melech goes and the king goes and he gives the house of Haman to Mordechai and you know, makes Mordechai the, you know, he, he now becomes the right-hand man of the king. Then it says, Vatosef Esther vatedaber lefnei HaMelech, that Esther goes and speaks to the king, Vatipol lefnei raglov, she falls by his feet. Vatefk, and she cries. Vatischanenlo, and she begs him. This is really the most dangerous thing that ever happened to Esther. Until now, she said, she mentioned she had a nation. She mentioned that she was in danger. Now she's out of danger. Her nation is still in big trouble. What's her excuse now? Really? Nothing. And what she does is, for the first time, when she went in the first time, she didn't cry when she was at the party and said and tried to get Haman killed. She didn't cry. Right now we have, she falls at his feet, she cries, she begs him, and she says to please take back the evil thing that Haman had done. Now what's the king's answer? The king's answer is, not so simple. He says, Hine, he says, listen, base Haman asati la Esther. I gave you the house of Haman. I hung him. And, like, I did you a lot of favors already. And now you, you can write whatever you want for the Jews. But just remember, anything that's written and in the, in the, in, signed by the king, that's, you can't take it back. So on the surface, right, as we're going through the Megillah and reading this, so this is the part that we kind of space out for. So it sounds like, oh, so, she, so he's telling the Jewish people that just write an edict 
to counter Haman's edict, and everything will be great for you. No. You know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, I already did you a couple of favors. You want to take something? Listen, you, and, and I gave you the ring of Haman, so you guys can write whatever you want. But you want me to take back what, hum, what I wrote for Haman, or what Haman wrote? Guess what? Whatever's written in the seal of the king, no backsies. There's no, there's, there's no turning back. That's it. It's there. You guys are on your own. So it's not that the problem has been solved at this point. The problem for the Jewish people is still alive and kicking. So what happens then? What we have then is then Mordecai goes and he writes a letter. And he sends it to, not to the Jews, he sends it to all the Sari Hamadinos, whatever, all those funny words, right? And all, um, on, on all the nations that from Hodu at Kush. And also, it says, and also to the Jews. Also, he sent it to the Jews. But this was a thing that he sent to all the nations. And it says that they should stand up for themselves and to kill every nation that comes against you, taf v'nashim, women and children, ushlolem lovos, and take the spoils. Now, the Jews never take the spoils. At the end of the story, they don't take the spoils. And Megillah says like a bunch of times, they don't take the spoils. What Mordechai now is engaged in is it's engaged in a war of perception. Because in the, the world of pogroms or lynchings or depending which country you're from, the pogrom goes in the direction that the powers that be allow it to go. If the powers that be, the police force, the army, whoever it is that the powers that be are, if they are just totally hands-off, if they're not going to get involved, so then the grum works. If the police force or the army or the governor, whoever it is, seems to be on a certain side, then that side wins. Mordechai now is second in command to the king. Same exact position that Haman had. He's putting out an edict, same exact thing that Haman did. So if you're the minister in um, Uzbekistan, who are you going to listen to? There's one edict that came from the king that said, you've got to let all the anti-Semites wipe out the Jews. Now there's another edict that says, you've got to let all the Jews wipe out the anti-Semites. You know, what do you do? You're just some guy in Uzbekistan who couldn't care less. But what you want to do is you want to do what you think the king wants you to do. You have to try to figure out, that's the wonderful world of politics, is that you have to figure out which way the wind is blowing and do the right thing. So what Mordechai and Esther have to do, and this is what the last two prokum, last couple of prokum are all about, are creating a perception that the king, even though he's totally not behind them, but that the king is behind what they're doing. So therefore, the, is a, there is a bloodthirsty edict put out to match Hamas. So just in case you thought that the Jews were going to be wimpy, now, if you saw a bloodthirsty one and a wimpy one, you go with the bloodthirsty one because those guys seem a little meaner. So they have to be equal edicts. So Mordechai writes this bloodthirsty edict, even though the Jews are never going to do anything like that. That's stage one. Stage two. Very strange, little thing happens. All of a sudden, in the middle over here, right, so things are running along, and all of a sudden, everybody stops, and we read a Pasuk out loud. Mordechai goes out in front of the king, with, with uh, royal robes, 
Techelis v'chor v'aterazov gedola v'sachet b'tz v'agamen v'ir shushan selav v'samecha l'yehudemayis. All right, we say that out loud. That is before the war. It's before the Jews are safe. We're reading about a parade that Mordechai had dressed in all the royal robes in Shushan. Why is there a parade if you're in grave danger? They should be stockpiling weapons at that point. You know what the reason is? Mordechai is trying to, again, create a perception. He wants people all the way out in whatever stand to hear that... Mordechai is a very important person. There was just a parade in his honor. Into that for Haman. So, this is, again, this is a very important point because it's at this point that the tide starts to turn. Because the next Pasuk is, and after people heard that, so there was a simcha v'sasun la'yehudim, v'rabim me'amei ha'aretz misyahadim, and all of a sudden, a bunch of the non-Jews start converting to Judaism, because all of a sudden, there's this fear of the Jewish people. It seems like the king is one million percent behind them. Mordechai is having this parade. He just put out an edict. So if you're the governor of Yehopetzville, right, you're suddenly rooting for the Jews. That's whose team you're on now. And then, right, and again, it mentions a couple of times, then there's this big war that happens. Right, Nikolo Yehudim Barehim Bechol Medinos Shverosh. Why? The fear of the Jews was now all over all of the nations, and no one was going to get in the Jewish people's way during this war. Then interestingly, this is really like the UN almost, it comes back that there are 500 people killed, really a terrible thing that goes on, right? And what's it called? Wants to pull the plug. Achashverosh is like, so Esther, it is in Paragtes. That's enough, right? You guys had your day? Killed 500 people. That's a lot of people to kill. Could we call it quits? The worst thing is when there's a war that's supposed to be won to the end, and it's not. Because all it does is it makes people feel like there wasn't really a victory, half a victory. Who knows if the, if the king stops the Jews, then I guess he wasn't behind him in the first place. So Esther asks for two things. Number one, could we take the ten, people, ten sons of Haman and hang them up? Now, these guys are these guys are long gone. They are dead. They're, they're they've been dead for a little while now. She hangs up their dead their dead bodies, because again that's a show. It's again it's a big PR thing. The king is hanging up these people as these are the evildoers, and she says, "Give us one more day, not in the whole world. Give us one more day in Shushan." That's another way of showing that in the capital, as far as the king's concerned. The Jews can go and take, on, take down the, the anti-Semites. And that's what happens. So at that point, that's when finally there is, and it's, there's such an irony in the fact that the final weapon that Esther uses is the bodies of the ten sons of Haman, that their bodies themselves become her final weapon in creating this perception that the Jewish people have the king fully behind them, and then the Jews are finally safe from, these, from the anti-Semites and from the people of Amalek, from Haman's, and people that were following Haman. So this is really a picture of the entire story. So the story, like the whole story with Haman and Esther, that's really a story of individuals. If you want to know when does the story of the Jewish people end, it ends at the end, because we only got saved when that war actually took place, and the Jewish people were able to defeat the anti-Semites. It may not have been so simple had these last couple of prokem not taken place. 
and again, the whole beginning of the Megillah, the setup of Vashti, etc., that all paints a picture for us of what it was exactly that Esther was trying to accomplish and why she went through the, 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 the hoops that she jumped through. It wasn't just to, you know, create a little more, uh, you, know, uh, you know, to lengthen the story, but it was really because this is, this is what she had to do. She was stuck at every turn she was stuck. And it gives us a much better picture of the Yad Hashem, of the hand of Hashem that there is throughout this whole story. It's, you know, it seems, like if you think about it very simply, it's like, well, I don't know, like there was a Jewish queen. I guess that was, that was pretty, you know, good for, that Hashem pulled that off. But then, and then she just went to the king and she said, hey, I'm Jewish, can you save my people? And he said, yeah. Is that such a big deal? But when you really think about it, it was a big deal because she couldn't say that. And everything had to be done like this. And everything had to be done with this unbelievable timing taking place in which there were all these suspicions built up and they fed the, 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 you know, the, the suspicions of the king and, and that turned the king against Haman. And we see that um, uh, Haman, who starts off by saying how the Jewish people are such a tremendous uh, you know, detriment to the king, and it's, it's fascinating because like, he really puts on them like... Uh, he says that they're a b- bunch of self-centered racists. That's what he says, that they keep their own laws and they don't, eh, right? And it ends up that he ends up getting killed because he's the one who ends up in looking in Ahasuerus' mind, like he's the self-centered one, like he's the racist, like he's the... And so we see some of the, the Nahapahu that takes place in this nice of uh, the Miguel Sester. Thank you.